Take out your Bible, if you would, and open to Luke chapter 22. We're in Luke chapter 22, the last few verses of that chapter. They are verses 63 to 71. We're picking up where Michael left off last week, and we're in the very early morning hours on the day of Jesus' death. Uh, You may remember that Jesus has been up all night. He was arrested while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken into custody there and taken to the house of the high priest. He's probably in the courtyard of the high priest as we pick up our text for today. And his trial has begun. His religious trial has begun. You may remember as well, as Michael taught last week, that um, Peter is here in the courtyard. Peter has um, mustered up enough courage to follow Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And it's there that he has failed Jesus. And denying him three times just as Jesus said he would. And I really appreciated what Michael had to say last week about repentance. That, that this sin, though serious, Peter's sin was serious, it, it was not the end of his life. It was not even the end of his ministry. Why? Because he repents. He genuinely and sincerely owns what he does without excuse, without caveat. And it's just a matter of weeks before God uses Peter to launch his church. This changed man who's been forgiven, he he, he gives a message that that allows for some of the most significant life change that we see in all the scripture where 3,000 or more people trust Christ and join the local church in Jerusalem just a few weeks later. And Peter, when he gets to the end of his life and and, and when what he believes about Jesus, his life hangs in the balance regarding what he believes about who Jesus is, he doesn't deny him again. You see, it's his repentance that leads to greater faith. Well, where we pick up our text for today, we're going to experience, we're going to find something that is exactly the opposite. We're going to find a group of leaders, a group of Jewish leaders known as the Sanhedrin who stand so firmly against Jesus that it will actually be their unrepentance that defines them. You see, just like Peter's repentance leads to more life, leads to full and abundant spiritual life, it will be their unrepentance, the unrepentance of these Jewish leaders that actually leads them to spiritual death. They cannot they will not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, last week, my daughter Emma, who's 11, and my uh, wife Hillary were down at D1, and they were doing some physical therapy on Emma's knee. She had broken her knee earlier, just the bone just below her knee earlier in, in the year. And so they were doing some physical therapy there, and they just gotten there. Hillary's talking for a moment to the trainer. Uh, Emma's on the table beginning to do some kind of preliminary exercises, and Tim Tebow walks in the training room. Tim talks to the trainer for a moment. He says hi to the group there, the small group there, uh, Hillary and Emma, and grabs something, then walks back out onto the field. Trainer looks at Emma, says, Emma, do you know who that was? And of course, Emma is my rabid, crazy sports fan. So she's, she's like, like, this is Emma. Just a month before that, she had worn all green to the Titans game because the Jets were in town and Tim Tebow plays for the Jets. So that's like, she's crazy about sports, crazy about Tebow. She's like, yes, I know who that was. And I'm pretty sure that we need to coordinate our training schedules for as long (laughs) as Tim is going to be in town, right? 
they, they had never seen Tim before. They, they knew who he was, seen him on TV, of course, never seen him in real life. They, they knew him by reputation, but Hillary and Emma, they, they had no trouble identifying who it was. They, they had no trouble believing that he was who he said he was. The chief priests and the scribes that we're gonna find here in the text, these members of the Sanhedrin, they, they've been watching Jesus for close to three years. Uh, they've seen him teach, they, they've heard him teach, they've, they've watched him perform miracles. They, they've, he's been in the temple, their temple, every morning this very week, every shred of evidence that they could have about this man they have, and none of them believe that he is who he says he is. They miss him completely, and in missing him, they miss everything. You see, what we believe about who Jesus is is the most important thing in all of life. And it's not just that it matters for eternity. It's not just that it impacts where we will spend eternity. It matters every single minute of every single day. It does. And it's here in this sham of a religious trial with a group of Jewish leaders who are so hard-hearted that they don't even sniff justice that you and I actually can see the truth. We can see Jesus for who he really is, and we can know who he is for sure. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a, a few minutes, a brief time, and look at kind of this night at the house of the high priest where Jesus spends in the courtyard. And, and then we'll take some time in the morning hours, where, kind of after daybreak, where Jesus goes to the council chamber of the Sanhedrin for a more formal piece of his trial. And, and then I'm going to invite you and I, we'll take about five minutes at the end, and, and I'm going to invite you and I just to consider the, the question that Luke presents in the text, wrestle with what it means for us to really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and how that would apply to our lives today. Okay, I want you to pick it up with me in verse 63, chapter 22, verse 63. This is the first part at the night or in the early morning hours at the house of the high priest. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody, these are the same men that arrested him in the garden. The men that are holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, beating him. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Stop there. I, I mentioned two weeks ago that this is a very dark night. This very dark night continues at the house of the high priest. It was sometime after midnight, probably around 2 or 2.30 in the morning that Jesus is taken to the house. He stays there until daybreak when he's taken to the chamber, uh, the council chamber. So he's there probably four hours. And, and, and we know this, that Jesus has done nothing wrong. There are no charges pressed against him. There's been no testimony that sticks, no ruling in a court of law. Yet these men who are holding him in custody, they, they're, they're, they're just chomping at the bit. They, they can smell it in the air. They know what's coming and they jump on the bandwagon. I mentioned two weeks ago that it's actually verse 53 in this chapter that is the pivotal verse that helps us to understand the rest of the story. Remember this? Helps us to understand God's greater story. It's there in verse 53 that Jesus looks at these same men and he, and he says, the hour and the power of darkness are yours. God in his sovereign plan and Jesus in his willful submission to that plan are allowing evil to prevail. 
And so what's dark in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few hours before has in some ways grown darker still in the courtyard of the high priest. And Jesus is blindfolded and he's ridiculed. They call him prophet. They've heard that he's a prophet. Maybe they've seen him prophesy or predict things. They say, prophet, you prophesy. You, you, you tell us which one of us is, is hitting you. Now, Jesus could have. He knew everything about these men. In fact, he had predicted this very moment in this very specific way back in Luke chapter 18. You see that in verse 32 and 33. He had predicted this moment. He, he could have answered their question. He doesn't. He endures the suffering that's set before him and the injustice of the moment it wreaks. Matthew and Mark, they tell us that not only is Jesus ridiculed as he mocked, but they slap him in the face. They spit in his face. They beat him mercilessly with their fists. They beat him mercilessly with blunt objects. The, the word for beating here is the same word they use for flattening metal, taking a thick piece of metal and flattening it down to be used is to strike it repeated, repeatedly and vigorously. This is violent. It's traumatic. It's gruesome. And because Jesus can't see, because he's blindfolded, he doesn't know from which way it's coming. It's the kind of torture we might fear in today's terms from a terrorist organization who has a group of people captive with pillowcases over their head. Sick. It's excruciating emotionally, mentally, and physically. Hard for us to even imagine. Harder still to consider that he suffered this way for you and I. And he did so willingly. Well, finally, day breaks, and you can imagine this walk from the courtyard of the high priest to the council chamber, which probably wasn't very far, but Jesus is bloodied and bruised. He's swollen and dirty. It's, it's likely that it was difficult for him to see from the swelling on his face from the abuse, probably difficult for him to walk. Then he stands before this group of men, this group of men that represent the highest court of justice, right, in, in all of Jerusalem. His body's broken, his clothes are torn, and he doesn't back down. He isn't finished yet. He answers their questions. He affirms who he is, and he, in so doing, condemns himself. And it's in this next little section from verse 66 to 71 that we're going to see three titles that are, either, that are used either about Jesus or by Jesus. Three titles that, that communicate his true identity. And we're going to look at this section just taking those one by one. The, the Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. You'll see them in the text. Look at verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders and the people of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you are the Christ, there's the first title, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. Stop there. It's the members of the council that actually use this first title, the Christ. And I want us to understand this because it'll connect some dots for us. The, the word Christ, the Christ, is the same word as the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. They are synonymous. They both mean the anointed one. And they refer to the Savior that God the Father promised would come to his chosen nation of Israel. 
Now, the members of the Sanhedrin have a very specific purpose for using this title, Christ. They want Jesus dead. No uncertain terms. Matthew 26 that they said that they have this trial because they're trying to obtain false testimony against him so that they can put him to death. The only way that they can put him to death is to get the political authority in the land to agree that he should be put to death. The Romans are the political authority. Now, the Romans couldn't care less about some religious dispute. They don't care about some man claiming to be God. The only thing that's gonna get their attention is if there's somebody who is some sort of revolutionary who's attempting like a king to gather the people and overthrow the political authority and power. So the, the Sanhedrin is trying to get Jesus to use the term Christ because the term Christ has kingly overtones. Most of the people in Israel thought of the Messiah in political terms, that the Messiah would come and he would be the savior for their nation, overthrowing Roman authority and reestablishing them as the power and authority, as the king. And this is the perfect trap. They think they can get the people to buy in and then they think they can get the Romans to buy in as well. Now, Jesus does not answer their question immediately, does he? He knows their hearts. He, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're trying to do. And so before he answers, he, he simply states what's true. It doesn't matter how I respond to you. You've already made up your mind about what you believe about me. It's not like we're gonna have a dialogue here. It's not like I'm gonna be asking questions and we're gonna to try to get to the truth. No, no, you've already made your decision. You're not really seeking the truth. In other words, this trial is a sham. And Jesus has been down this road before where, where he's asked them questions and they don't respond. They grow silent. So all that in Luke 20 with his question about John the Baptist. Luke's been, I mean, Jesus has been down this road before too where they've asked him a question. He's responded and there is no change in the relationship. The Pharisees, the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin, they only grow more and more hard-hearted. Now, what's interesting here to me is the title itself. Luke's gospel leaves no doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. It's a title that's used more than 25 times in the gospel of Luke alone. We, we see it throughout. In Luke chapter two, the angel of the Lord appears to, to the shepherds, right? Today, unto you in the town of David, the Savior is gonna be born and he is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 25 and 26, Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple. They meet a man there named Simeon. He's a righteous man. He's a godly man. He's an older man. And God has promised Simeon that before he dies, he will see the Christ. He will see the Messiah. Simeon sees Jesus, no introduction, and filled with the Holy Spirit, he identifies him. This is the Christ. I have seen the Lord's Christ. Luke 9, verse 20, famous confession of Peter. And Peter declares, this is who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. I could go on and on. I won't for sake of time. Suffice it to say this, all of the prophecies and promises of God are fulfilled to the letter about Jesus, the Christ. He is the Christ. 
And he is the son of man. That's the second title. We see it in verse 69. Pick it up there. Jesus has just said, it's useless for me to answer you because you won't believe me, but always a very important word in scripture, just FYI, but anytime you see it, circle it. It's a transitionary kind of a word, but something different's coming in this case, but I will answer your question. Why? Because there's something far greater at stake. Here's what he says, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Stop there. The son of man is Jesus' favorite title. It's the one that he uses most frequently about himself. We see it more than 80 times in the gospel account. And there's a very important reason for that. You know, there's a sense to which any one of us is a son or daughter of man. We're, we're human, right? But this carries a very unique title, very unique significance in that it comes from the Old Testament. It's a reference to Daniel chapter seven where Daniel sees a vision and his vision is that there is one who like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven. He comes from the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and God the Father gives him all authority and dominion and, a gl and glory over all of heaven and earth. It's a vision that describes the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ when his kingdom would, will be fully consummated, when he will rule with that divine authority bestowed to him upon the Father over all heaven and earth. And so it's like this, when we get to this part of, of Luke's description of this trial, it, it's like this, it's like the first title, the Christ, it points back, right, to, to the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, this title, the son of man, it points forward to what he will do beginning with his resurrection in just three days. And so in this title, right here in verse 69, we, we see the tension between his humanity, right, and his divinity. It's like they're all kind of bottled up in one verse. That tension is held in place. Jesus is human, Born of a woman, gonna die on a cross in a matter of hours. And Jesus is divine. He will be raised from the grave. He will ascend into heaven. He will, in fact, return again. And it's right here in this verse that we feel that tension, okay? So with those eyes, let's look at it just for a minute again. From now on, transition, I'm about to die and leave this earth. I'm human and when I do, I will sit at the proper place at the right hand of the Father, divine. There they both are. Now this word, the right hand, it, it, it carries the idea of unlimited power and authority. It's divine power and authority, like nothing any human could ever taste or, or imagine. And it's a reference to Psalm 110, verse one, where God says, for the person who sits at my right hand, I will make their enemies a footstool for their feet. And I just love this here because not only is Jesus saying, no uncertain terms, this is who I am. I am the son of man. He's also saying, I just want you to know those of you who are judging me right now in this moment, those of you who have the authority to judge me in this hour of darkness, I will in fact be your judge, your eternal judge in the end. Why? Because it's the son of man who's coming back on the clouds. 
and I am the Son of Man. When they heard this, the Jewish religious leaders, when they heard this, they, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. They knew the prophecy in Daniel 7. They had memorized Psalm 110. They knew that Jesus was claiming divine power. And it's here where the fireworks start going off for them. This is blasphemy. No man can say that they will sit at the right hand of the Father because to sit at the right hand of the Father is to be divine. It's to have divine power and authority. That is blasphemy. Anyone that says that needs to be executed. This is the end. It's over. This is the damning statement. This is the charge that sticks. They can taste that the end is near and they're salivating. And so in verse 70, they just go right in for the kill. And I want you to see this, verse 70. And they all said, all 70 in unison, like scavengers on the prey, we've got him now. They all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. You know, there are a large number of people in the church today who consider themselves to be a part of the church to get today, not just fellowship, but the, the greater church, and including some biblical scholars who, who want to make Jesus out to be a great prophet. Uh, they want to make him out to be a transformational leader. They, they may call him a source for moral living, but nothing more. Some who would even deny that he claims to be God. I, I want us to notice here that this is one thing that the religious leaders actually get right. They knew exactly who he claimed to be and that's what makes them so angry. You see, the rich, rich irony here in the text is that they are actually the ones who use this divine title, the Son of God. In fact, in the original language, Jesus answered to them where it says, yes, I am here. It's actually closer to who you say, what you say, is who I am. In other words, those are your words, not mine, but I'm not going to deny them. And here's how this rich irony plays out. They're the ones saying it, and they're the ones who will actually accomplish it. Here's what I mean. They will kill the man who they say can't be the son of God so that he can prove three days later in his resurrection that he actually is the son of God. The hour and power of darkness are yours so that my will will be done. My greater purpose and plan will be accomplished, which is to demonstrate to all who I am, and I am the Son of God. And for any of us who have spent almost two years studying the book of Luke, which is most of us in this room, we, we've seen this evidence. And Jesus has the right to claim that he is the Son of God. It's throughout the Gospel of Luke. You can go all the way back to Luke 1. The Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, uh, appears to Mary. He says to, to Mary, you're going to have a son. He'll be called Jesus, and he will be the Son of the Most High God. And we see it at Jesus' baptism. Holy Spirit descends upon him, and there's a voice that's heard from heaven by many. John the Baptist and many others standing around the river. It's the voice of the Father who says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
We see at the transfiguration, top of the mountain, Jesus is staying there with Moses and Elijah, the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord is shown around them. And three of the disciples that are closest to Jesus, they're standing there, they see this, and they hear the voice of the Father again from heaven, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. Yes, Jesus is the Son of Man. But there is no title like the Son of God. Why? Because to be the son of God, John chapter one tells us, is to be God. You see, it is this unique title that describes the unique father-son relationship that we have in the Trinity. Uh, Philip Ryken says this, he is the supreme, unique, divine, and eternal son of the father in a way that his enemies would never, ever understand. And when Jesus declares, when Jesus affirms that he is in fact the son of God, the trial is over. The members of the Sanhedrin have what they wanted. They'd stayed up all night to get it. Jesus had said said it himself. What more did they need? And so they take him to Pontius Pilate and demand that he be killed. Luke's point in this passage is, is very straightforward. Just like we are where we are. And and here's what Luke's saying. He's simply inviting the reader, you and I, to consider the same question that we have right here in the text. Luke shows us what these religious leaders believe about who Jesus is. He's a liar. He's a blasphemer. He's a fraud. And Jesus says, well, if you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me for who I really am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. And then it's just like Luke just serves it up to his readers. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe about who Jesus is? And so I want us to take just a few moments here. We'll take about five minutes, just kind of an extended so what to to take that and apply it in our own lives because I think for many of us, it's easy to come in here and go, well, sure, I know who Jesus is. Well, sure, I believe what Luke says, but I, I want us to consider, is that reflected in our lives? Do we really believe that so fully with such conviction and certainty that, that it's seen, that it's shown, that it's demonstrated? See, I, it's not just a text for those who might not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a text for all of us. So I want us to consider, and here's how I want to do it. I, I want to start just very simply with this question. And so I want you to take out a, a pen. If you've got one in your program, you can grab your phone, a, a, a tablet. I want you to write down just very briefly your, your answer to this question. Then we're just going to interact with it for a, for a couple of moments. So grab something. If you don't have anything, nobody near you has anything, just, just consider the question. You can think about it. It'd be helpful to see it, but you can think about it. And I want you to, to consider it for a moment before we interact with it. And it's simply this. Who do you say that Jesus is? How would you answer that question in your own words? I did this last night and and I'll just share what I said with you. It might give you a thought as to how you might say it or think about it. I said, he is God. He became a man because I could not save myself and he will reign as the ultimate king for all of eternity. My my words, yours might be a little bit different. How, How would you say it? Who do you believe that Jesus is? Take just a minute to answer that question, would you?